Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And guys, stick with me. I am fighting off a cold. You'll be able to hear it in my voice, I have no doubt. But, uh, you know, I wanted to get you guys a brand new episode, so we're going to fight on, because the show must keep going, I think. I think that's the saying. I don't know. This cold medicine's good, though. All right, anyway, I thought that we would do an episode about smart speakers, because I wanted to kind of start this whole episode off with with an old man observation, you know, a get-off-my-lawn kind of thing. And this is from our resident old man, old man Strickland, that meaning, meaning me. So when I was young, speakers were dumb. Now, I don't, I don't mean that speakers were useless or that they were terrible or that they were incapable of replicating certain frequencies or volumes of sound or that they were limited in some other way other than they didn't, quote unquote, think. They didn't connect to any sort of computational engine in a meaningful way. You might have a set of speakers plugged into a computer, but that was just a one-way communications tool, right? It was just a way to provide an outlet for sound that your computer was generating, nothing more than that. But contrast that with today, when we have numerous smart speakers on the market. These speakers act as a user interface between us and the internet at large, often facilitated by a virtual assistant of some kind. Now, with these speakers, we don't just listen to stuff like music and podcasts and the radio and, you know, other traditional audio content. We use them to find out information. We might link them to our calendars so that we can get reminders for upcoming appointments. We probably use them to ask about the weather report. I use mine at home for that all the time. Or... Even more often than that, if you're at my house, you'll hear us use it to find out which foods are safe for us to feed to our dog. My doggy Tybalt absolutely loves our smart speaker because it frequently gives us permission to spoil him with a carrot or a piece of banana. But how do these smart speakers work? How are they able to respond to our requests? And what are their limitations? How safe are they? That's the sort of stuff we're going to be looking into in this episode of Tech Stuff. And we'll start off with the basics, which means we have to start off with how speakers work in general. Now, this is something that I've covered before on Tech Stuff, but I want to go over it again from a high level because, well, I just find it fascinating that people figured out how to harness electricity to drive a motor so that it could, in turn, cause components to replicate a recorded or transmitted sound. And really, motors being too generous, but to to drive an element to create vibrations that could replicate a sound that was made into another component, that whole thing just boggles my mind that people are smart enough to figure that out. Okay, so to understand how speakers work, it first helps to understand how sound itself works. Sound is a physical phenomenon. Do-do-do-do-do. Sound is all about vibrations. And typically, we experience sound when we pick up on changes in air pressure that enter through our uh, ear canal and then affect the tympanic membrane or eardrum. So it's all about these changes of, of, uh, of air pressure, all about uh, air molecules transmitting vibrations from a source outward in a radiating pattern. From, from that source. So let's think of someone knocking on a door, for example. You're inside a house, someone's knocking on your door. When that person's hand hits the door, it causes the door to vibrate. And that vibration transmits to the surrounding air molecules on the other side of the door. They get pushed through that vibration and then pulled when the, uh, the, the wood is vibrating back toward its original position. So the air molecules vibrate. Those air molecules cause the next surrounding layer of air molecules to vibrate as well, and so on and so forth. It's like a cascade or domino effect. You get these little pockets of high and low air pressure that travel outward from that door. It spreads further as it goes uh, toward, you know, any distance. And if you are close enough so that you can still detect those changes in air pressure— You experience this by hearing the knocking on the door. Those vibrating air molecules lose a bit of energy as they move outward, right? As they vibrate to the next layer, you start to lose a bit of energy with each 
transmission of that. So the sound gets quieter the further away you are because there's not as many air molecules vibrating. Its amplitude has decreased. So if you are in hearing range, you can pick up on those changes of air pressure. They encounter the tympanic membrane in your ear canal. Those changes in pressure will cause a reaction in your middle and inner ear set that uh, will ultimately get picked up by your brain that interprets it as sound. Now, the frequency at which those fl- fluctuations occur relate to the pitch that we hear. So faster vibrations are higher pitches, higher frequencies, higher notes, if you think of a musical scale. We perceive the force of the changes as volume. So lower force is lower volume, right? And higher force is higher volume. The human ear can hear a pretty decent range of frequencies from 20 hertz, which means 20 cycles or 20 waves per second, past a a given point of reference, to 20 kilohertz. That's 20,000 cycles or waves per second. So yeah, the cycle refers to the frequency of the wavelength of sound. Uh, The lower the frequency, the lower the sound. All right, and then our brain has to make meaning of all this, right? It's not just that it's picking up on it. Our brain interprets this, and we experience it as a a sound we have heard. So it either matches this perceived sound with one we've encountered before, and then we say, oh, I know what that is. That's someone knocking at the door. Or it might be, holy cow, I've never heard that sound in my life. I have no idea what it is. Uh, If the sound is language, then our brains have to derive the meaning from the perceived sound. We've heard someone say words such as, you're hearing me say this. Uh, Then our brains have to take that collection of sounds and say, what does that actually mean? What is the the context? What is the, the intent? What is the message here? Otherwise, it would just be, you know, random noises that I'm making with my mouth. All right, so we have a basic understanding behind the physics of sound. Now to talk about speakers and microphones. And the reason I'm going to talk about both of them is that the devices complement one another. You can think of one as being the other in reverse. Plus, smart speakers, we have to talk about microphones anyway because smart speakers have microphones as well as the speaker element. So you can think of this as one long process of taking the physical phenomena of sound waves transforming that physical phenomena into an electrical signal, taking that electrical signal and changing it back into something that can produce the sound waves that started the whole thing. So you're replicating the original sound waves with this end uh, device, which in this case is a loudspeaker. So the microphone is the part of the process where you take the sound and you turn it into an electrical signal. And the speaker is where you take the electrical signal and you turn it back into actual sound. That's the simple way, but what's actually happening? Well. Let's talk about it on a physical level. Sound waves go into a microphone. So you've got these fluctuations in air pressure that encounter a microphone. I'm speaking into a microphone right now, so this is happening right now. Inside the microphone is a very thin diaphragm, typically made out of a very flexible plastic. And it's sort of like the skin of a drum. So as the changes in air pressure encounter the diaphragm, they cause the diaphragm to move back and forth. Well, attached to the diaphragm is a coil of conductive wire, and that coil wraps either around or near a permanent magnet. Magnets have magnetic fields. They have a north pole and a south pole, and there's a magnetic field that uh, surrounds the, the magnet. And the electromagnetic effect means that if you move a coil of conductive wire through a magnetic field, it will produce a change in voltage in that coil, otherwise known as electromotive force. And that means electrical current will flow through the coil. Now, if you have the end of that coil attached to a wire, a conductive wire, uh, for that current to flow through, you can send that current on to other components. So for our purposes, the component in question would be an amplifier. And I'll get to explaining why that is in just a moment. But first, let's talk about loudspeakers. And the way a loudspeaker works is essentially the reverse of a microphone. You've got your permanent magnet around or near which is a coil of conductive wire. 
the wire is connected to a diaphragm, one much larger and typically made out of stiffer material than the plastic you'd find in a microphone. This is the element inside a speaker that will vibrate, that will push air and pull air as it moves uh, either outward or inward. The electrical signal comes from a source, such as the microphone we were just using a second ago. That comes into the loudspeaker, and it flows through the coil. Now, when you have an electrical current flowing through a conductive coil, you generate a magnetic field. Because of the laws of electromagnetism, you've got the electromagnetic field generated as a result. Now, that field will interact with the magnetic field of the permanent magnet. That, the permanent magnet always has a magnetic field. The coil only has one when electric current is flowing through it. And as I said, we have magnets that have a north pole and a south pole. And we also know that when we bring two magnets with their no north poles together, they'll push against each other, right? Because like repels like. But if we turn one of those magnets around so that now it's a south pole and a north pole, they attract one another. You know, opposites attract. So by having the, this uh, magnetic field being generated by the coil, uh, it starts to generate uh, interactions with the magnetic field of the permanent magnet. So they start to push and pull against each other. Well, the coil is attached to that diaphragm, so it in turn drives the diaphragm to either push outward or pull inward. That causes air molecules to vibrate just as it would with any other you know, source of sound, and it emanates outward from the loudspeaker. So you get a representation of the same sound that was going into the microphone got converted into an electrical current. The electrical current then was uh, passed through a coil and next to a permanent magnet to create the same sort of movement. It replicates the movement of the original diaphragm in the microphone and generates the sound. So you get the replication of the sound that was made in the other location. Uh, it's pretty cool, I think. Now, I did mention earlier the, that you would need an amplifier. And the reason you need an amplifier is that the electrical signal generated by a microphone is far too weak to drive a loudspeaker's diaphragm. You just wouldn't have the juice to do it. It, it would be much, much less uh, powerful than what the speaker would need. So chances are the diaphragm would either not move at all because it would just be too stiff. It would re resist the movement too much. Or it would move so weakly as to generate little to no sound, so it wouldn't do you any good. So the signal from the microphone has to first pass through an amplifier, which, as the name implies, takes an incoming signal and increases the amplitude of that signal, the volume, in other words. Uh, so it doesn't affect pitch, but it does affect the signal strength and consequently the volume. And I've done episodes about amplifiers, including explaining the difference between amplifiers that use vacuum tubes and ones that use transistors. So I'm not going to go into that here. Besides, it doesn't really factor into our conversation about smart speakers anyway. It's just important for it to work with a microphone and speaker setting. Now, over the years, engineers have paired microphones and speakers in lots of stuff. You've got telephones, you've got intercom systems, public address systems, handheld radios, all sorts of things. So that technology was well and truly mature before we ever got our first smart speaker. There wasn't much call to incorporate microphones into home speaker systems for many years. I mean, what would you actually use a microphone embedded in a speaker for before smart speakers? Typically, you would have your speakers, like I'm talking about like, like sound system speakers, you would have them hooked up to some other dumb, as in not connected to a network technology. So it might be a sound system or home entertainment setup with a television as the focal point or maybe even, you know, a computer for the purposes of playing more dynamic sounds for like video games and, and things like that. Um, but for a very long time, these were all thought of as one-way communications applications, right? Like the sound was coming from a source and it would get to us through the speakers, but we weren't meant to send sound back through those same channels. The information was just coming to you. You weren't sending anything back. But that would all change in time. Now, one thing to keep in mind about smart speakers is that they are the product of several different technologies and lines of innovation and development that all converge together. 
the microphone and speaker technology is one of the oldest ones that we can point to as far as the fundamental underlying technology is concerned. The stuff that's been around since the late 19th century. Now, there is one other we'll talk about that's even older, but I don't want to spoil things. I'll just mention there is an even older line of development that goes into smart speakers than the microphone speaker stuff of the 19th century. Most of the other components, however, are much younger than that. One big one is speech or voice recognition. Creating computer systems that could detect noise was relatively simple, right? You could have a computer connected to microphones, and they could monitor the input from those microphones, and any incoming signal could be registered, right? They could record an incoming signal that would indicate the microphone had detected a noise. That's child's play. That's easy to do. But teaching computers how to analyze those signals and decipher them so that the computer could display in text or otherwise act upon that that sound in a meaningful way, that was much more difficult. There was an IBM engineer named William C. Dirsch of the Advanced System Development Division who created an early implementation of voice recognition. It was a very limited application, but it proved that the ability to interact with computers by voice was more than just science fiction. Within IBM, it was called the shoebox. Dirsch worked on this project in the early 1960s, and what he produced was a machine that had a microphone attached to it. The machine could detect 16 spoken words, which included the digits of 0 to 9, plus some command indicators like plus, minus, total, subtotal, you get the idea. So you could speak a string of numbers and then commands to this device, then ask it to total everything, and it would do so. So it was more or less a basic calculator with some voice interpretation incorporated into it. Now, there's a great newsreel piece about this shoebox. There's a demonstration of it, and it came out in 1961. And I love that newsreel because it has that great music you would hear in the background of those old industrial and business films. Anyway, there's also a helpful chart that hangs in the background of that video uh, where Dirsch is actually explaining how it works. You can see a little bit behind him what the what is actually being analyzed. And uh, he broke the words down into phonemes and syllables. So phonemes being specific sounds that make up words. Uh, So for example, the digit one is a single syllable word with a vowel sound right at the front. But you also have the word eight. That's another single syllable word. It has a vowel sound right at the front, but it's different from one phonetically in that eight also has a plosive. It has that hard T at the end. So the shoebox was limited not just in what words it could recognize, but also the types of voices it could recognize. Get someone who has a different dialect or manner of speech, and the machine might not be able to understand them because they're not pronouncing the words the same way that Dirsch did. This would be a big challenge uh, in speech recognition moving forward. And it's also an example of where we find bias creeping into technology. And it's not necessarily a conscious thing, but if you have people designing a system and they're designing it based off their own uh, you know, speech patterns, the, their own pronunciations, their own dialects, then it may be that the system they create works really well for them and less well for anyone who isn't them. And the further away you are from their manner of speaking, the more frustration you will encounter as you try to interact with that technology. That's an example of bias. And in fact, if you read the histories of speech recognition and as we'll get to later, natural language processing, you'll see a lot of people say, it works great if you happen to be a white man because the manner of speech was being, uh, or the people who were designing it were primarily white men who were uh, typically aiming for a, a what is considered a non-accented American dialect uh, somewhere in you know the eastern seaboard side. Uh, But that meant that if you did have an accent or a dialect or you had a different vernacular, that it was harder for the systems to actually understand what you were saying. That's an example of bias. Well, 
The general strategy was, again, to break up speech into constituent sound units, you know, those phonemes, and then to suss out which words were being spoken based on those phonemes. And that was done by digitizing the voice, transforming it from sound into data that represented stuff like the sound's frequency or pitch, and then matching up specific signal signal signatures with specific phonemes. So generally, the idea was that the computer system would monitor incoming sound, convert the sound into digital data, compare that data that it had received with information stored in a database in an effort to look for matches. Uh, the Shoebox da- database was just 16 words in size. Later ones would be much larger, but pretty quickly people realized this was not an efficient way of doing speech recognition because the bigger the vocabulary, the more work intensive it was to build out those databases. So it wasn't something that people thought would be sustainable for very large vocabularies. But the shoebox marked the beginning of a serious effort to create machines that could accept audio cues as actual input. And as we'll see, that's one important component for these smart speaker systems. I've got a lot more to say, but before I get into the next part, let's take a quick break. Now, obviously, we didn't jump right into full voice recognition right after IBM's shoebox innovation. The challenges related to building automated speech recognition systems were numerous, even for just a single language. Because as I said, you can have accents and dialects. One voice can have a very different tonal quality from another. People speak at different speeds. Teaching machines how to recognize speech when the phonemes and pacing of that speech aren't consistent from speaker to speaker, that's really hard. This kind of gets back to the same sort of challenges you have when you're teaching machines how to recognize images. You know, you teach a human what a a coffee mug is. I always use this example. But you teach a human what a coffee mug is, and pretty soon they can extrapolate from that example and understand that coffee mugs can come in all different sizes and colors and, you know, different designs and textures. We get it. Like, you, you see a couple of coffee mugs, you understand. Machines, though, they aren't able to do that. Machines, you know, you have to give them lots and lots and lots of different examples before they can start to pick up on what things actually make a coffee mug. Same sort of thing with speech, right? So if you don't have consistency between speakers, it makes it very hard for machines to learn what people are saying. Now, it didn't take long for the tech industry at large to really dive into trying to solve this problem. In 1971, DARPA, that's the Research and Development Division of the United States Department of Defense, got behind speech recognition in a big way. Now, remember, DARPA itself doesn't do research. The organization's purpose is to invite organizations to pitch projects that align with whatever DARPA's goals are, and then DARPA would provide funding to the winning organizations to see these projects to completion if possible. So DARPA is really more of a vetting and funding organization. Anyway, in 1971, DARPA created a five-year program called Speech Understanding Research, or SUR. The initial goal was pretty darn ambitious, considering the capabilities of the technology at the time. The project director, Larry Roberts, wanted a system that would be capable of recognizing a vocabulary of 10,000 words with less than 10% error. After holding a few meetings with some of the leading computer engineers of the day, Roberts adjusted that goal significantly. After that adjustment, the target was going to be a system capable of recognizing 1,000 words, not 10,000. The error level still had to be less than 10%, and the goal was for the system to be able to accept continuous speech as opposed to very deliberate speech with pauses between each pair of words. That would not be really that useful. One person who was skeptical about the potential success of this project was John R. Pierce of Bell Labs, He argued that any success would be limited so long as machines remained incapable of understanding the words. Not just recognizing a word based on phonemes, but understanding what the word is. That is, Pierce felt that the machines needed some way to parse the language to get to the meaning of what was being said. That's an important idea that we'll come back to in just a bit. 
Now, among the companies and organizations that landed contracts with DARPA were Carnegie Mellon University, BBN, which actually played a big part in developing ARPANET, the predecessor to the Internet, Lincoln Laboratory, and several more. And very smart people began to create systems intended to recognize speech in meaningful ways. The names of those programs were a lot of fun. There was HWIM, that stood for Hear What I Mean, as in hear, as in listen. Hear What I Mean. That one was from BBN. CMU introduced Hearsay, which was later designated as Hearsay 1, and then they came out with Hearsay 2. Uh, they also would demonstrate another one called Harpy. Oh, and there was a professor at CMU named Dr. James Baker who would design a system called Dragon in 1975 that he would later leverage into a company with his wife, Dr. Janet M. Baker, in the 1980s. And they had a very successful business with speech recognition software. Now, I'm not going to go into each of those programs in deep detail, but rather just mention that they all helped advance the cause of creating systems that can recognize speech. One of the big developments that came out of all that work was a shift to probabilistic models, which would also play a really important part in another phase of developing the smart speaker. So what do I mean when I say probabilistic? Well, as the name indicates, it all has to do with probabilities. Essentially, systems would analyze incoming phonemes and make guesses as to what was being said based on the probability of it being a given word or part of a word. The system's typically go with whatever word has the highest probability of being the correct one. Even with that approach, there are nuances to language that are difficult to account for with a machine. So, for example, you have homonyms, in which you have two words that sound the same but have very different meanings and potentially spellings, like write, as in to write a sentence, or write, as in am I right or am I wrong? Or you could have a pair of words that sound like a single word and have confusion there, such as a door. You could say a door, you mean you're meaning a single door, a door to go into a building. Or you might say adore, as in I adore this podcast you're doing, Jonathan. That's sweet of you. Thank you for saying that. So... Computer scientists were hard at work advancing both the capability of machines to make correct guesses at individual phonemes and then full words, as well as figuring out a way to teach machines to adjust guesses based on context. That requires a deeper understanding of the language within which you're working. If you're aware of certain idioms, you can make a good guess at a word or phrase, even if you didn't get a clean pass at it, right? So for example, the phrase, it's raining cats and dogs, just means it's raining a lot. And if a system included a database that indicated the phrase cats and dogs sometimes follows the phrase, it's raining, then the system is more likely to guess the correct sequence of words instead of guessing something that sounded similar, but it's wrong. For example, if it said, oh, they must have said, it's raining bats and hogs, that would not make sense. So, the systems estimate the probability that any given sequence of sounds within the database matches what the systems have just quote-unquote heard. Progress in this area was steady but slow, and I'd argue that it was also a reminder that concepts like Moore's Law do not apply universally across technology. Rapid development in one particular domain of technology is not necessarily an indicator that the same sort of progress will be observed in all other areas of tech. We often get into the mistaken habit of believing that Moore's Law applies to everything. All right, so a related concept to voice recognition is something called natural language processing. And this relates back to how we humans tend to process information compared to the way machines tend to do it. So we humans formulate ideas, we shape those ideas into words and sentences, we communicate them in some way to other people through that language. It may be through speech, it may be through text, it may even be through a non-verbal or non-literary way, but we communicate those ideas. Machines typically accept input. They perform some process or sequence of processes on that input, and then they supply an output of some sort. Machines do this in machine language. That's a code that's far too difficult for humans to process easily. Binary is an example of machine language. Binary is represented as zeros and ones, which when grouped together can represent all sorts of stuff. But if you just looked at a big block 
of zeros and ones, it would mean nothing to you. It's not easy for humans to use, and then machines, in turn, are not natively able to understand human language, so there's a language barrier there. Because of that, people created different programming languages. These languages provide layers of abstraction from the machine language. They make it easier to create programs or directions that the computer should follow, So the person who's doing the programming is using a programming language that's easy for humans to use. That then gets converted into machine language that the computers understand. But what if you could send commands to a computer using natural language, not even programming language? You could just speak in plain vernacular, whether it's English or any other language, the way humans communicate with one another? What if a computer could extract meaning from a sentence, understand what it was you wanted the computer to do, and then respond appropriately? So imagine how much time you could save if you could just tell your computer what you wanted it to do, and it took care of the rest. If you had a a powerful enough computer system with strong enough AI, maybe you could even potentially do something like describe a, a game that you would love to be able to play. Like, not not a game that exists, a game in your head. And you could describe it to a computer, and the computer could actually program that game. Well, we're, we're definitely not anywhere close to that yet. But we've made enormous progress with natural language processing. Now, the history of natural language processing isn't exactly an extension of voice recognition. It's actually more like a parallel line of investigation. And that's because natural language processing doesn't require voice recognition. You could have an implementation in which you just write commands in natural language. You know, type them out on a keyboard, and the machine then carries out those those instructions. So much of the early work in natural language processing was in text-based communication rather than in speech. The history of natural language processing includes stuff like the Turing test, named after Alan Turing. So the most common interpretation of the Turing test these days is that you've got a scenario in which a person is alone in a room with a computer terminal. They can type whatever they like into the computer terminal, and someone or something is responding to them in real time. Now, it might be another person, or it might be a computer system that's responding to that person. You run a whole bunch of test subjects through this process. And if the computer system is able to fool a certain percentage of those test subjects, like, say, 30% of them, that it is, in fact, another human and not a computer, it is said to have passed the Turing test. And typically, we use that to mean the machine has given off the appearance of possessing intelligence similar to the one that we humans possess. That gets beyond our scope for this episode, but it helps point out that stuff like speech recognition and natural language processing are both closely related to the field of artificial intelligence. In fact, they really belong within the artificial intelligence domain. The Turing test was more of a hypothetical. It was a bit of a cheeky way of saying, hey, if you can't tell whether or not something is intelligent, it makes sense to treat it as if it actually is intelligent. After all, we assume that every human with whom we interact possesses some level of intelligence based on those interactions, so why should we not extend the same courtesy to machines? Now, Natural language processing would prove to be another super challenging problem to solve in computer science. Early work was done in translation algorithms, and these were programs that attempted to take phrases written in one language and translate those automatically into a second language. At first, that seemed pretty straightforward, but you realize that's also pretty tricky, really. For one thing, you can't just translate word for word and keep the same order from one language to another. The syntax, or the rules that the language follow, uh, they, they can be different from language to language. In one language, you might use an infinitive, such as to record, in the middle of a sentence, while another language might put all the infinitives at the end of a sentence. So, In one language, I might say, I'm going to record a podcast in the studio right now. But in another language, it might come out as, I'm going a podcast in the studio right now to record. Starts to sound like Yoda. There was initial excitement around machine translation, but once computer scientists and linguists began to see the scope of this challenge, 
their excitement faded a bit. Also, there was a lot of other stuff going on in the 1960s and 70s that was demanding a lot of attention, such as the space race. So for a while, this branch of computer science was given less attention than other branches. And by less attention, I really mean funding. Now, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about the advances that were necessary to support natural language processing, and we'll move on to how this would be another important component in smart speakers. But first, let's take another quick break. Okay, so early enthusiasm for natural language processing created a bit of a hype cycle that ultimately crashed into the telephone pole of unmet expectations. That was a really bad metaphor. Anyway, natural language processing went through something similar to what we saw with virtual reality in the 1990s. You know, people saw what was actually achievable, and then they compared that to what they thought they were going to get, and those two things didn't match up at all. And that really pulled the rug out of funding for natural language processing, which meant, of course, that progress slowed way down. It kept going, but... It was definitely on the back burner for a lot of projects. When interest renewed in the 1980s, there had been a shift in thinking around natural language processing. Computer scientists were starting to look at statistical approaches similar to what was going on with speech recognition, building out probabilistic models in which a computer can start making what amounts to educated guesses at the meaning of a command or a phrase. Machine learning became an important component on the back end of these systems, and later, artificial neural networks became an important part as well. A neural network processes information in a way that's sort of analogous to how our brains do it. You have nodes, or neurons, that connect to other nodes, and each node affects incoming data in a certain way, performing some sort of operation on it. And the degree to which they do that in one way versus another is called the weight of that node. Computer scientists apply weights across the nodes in an effort to get a specific result in order to train these models. So you might feed a specific command into such a system and you let it go through the computational process from the beginning of the neural network through to the end, and then you look at the result. And if the result is correct, well, that just means the system is already working as you intended it, which honestly is not likely to happen early on. But if it's not correct, then you start adjusting the weights on those nodes in order to affect the outcome. I almost think of it as like Plinko or Pachinko, where you've got the little coin and you drop it down and it bounces on all the pegs. And sometimes you're like, you might think, all right, well, this time it's going to go right for that center slot. But it doesn't. And you think, well, maybe if I remove some of these pegs or I shift these pegs over a little bit, I can drop it in that same spot and get it to hit the center. It's kind of like that, except you're talking about data, not physical moving parts. So you have to do this a lot, like up to like millions of times in order to try and train a system so that it responds appropriately to commands. And once it's trained, you can then test new commands on the system to see if it can parse them and respond appropriately. And in this way, the system, quote-unquote, learns over time how to respond to commands. And then we have another component that's important with smart speakers, and that's speech generation. So it's one thing to have a machine either broadcast or play back a recording of speech. It's another thing for a machine to generate brand new speech. In computer science, we call it speech synthesis. Now, this is the really old technology I was alluding to at the beginning of this episode. Speech synthesis if you want to be really, you know, kind of technical about it, it actually predates every other technology I've mentioned up to this point, at least in its most rudimentary implementations. You have to go way back to the 18th century, the 1770s. That's when a Russian smarty pants named Christian Kradzenstein was building a device that used acoustic resonators, these, these reeds that would vibrate. And it was an attempt to replicate basic vowel sounds. Now, even with such a working device, 
it would be really difficult to communicate anything meaningful unless you were, I guess, uh, speaking whale like Dory in Finding Nemo. But it would be an early example of how people tried to create mechanical systems that could replicate speech or elements of speech. Another inventor named Wolfgang von Kempelen built an acoustic mechanical speech machine. And that used reeds and tubes and a pressure chamber. And it was all meant to replicate various speech sounds. He had other elements to create sounds like plosives, those hard sounds uh, that I mentioned earlier in the episode. So he had all these different elements that working together could create parts of the sounds that we humans make when we speak. He also built a supposed chess-playing machine, and it turned out that the chess-playing part was a hoax. So unfortunately, because that device was a hoax, a lot of people dismissed his other work, which was legitimate, So by fudging on one thing, he kind of cast doubt on everything he had ever done. Skipping ahead quite a bit, we get to Homer Dudley, which is a fantastic name. Uh, He unveiled the Voder, or Voice Operating Demonstrator, device at the New York World's Fair in 1939. It consisted of a complex series of controls And it sort of reminds me of something like a musical instrument, kind of like a synthesizer, but with extra controlling units. Like there was like a wrist element, there was a pedal. There was a lot of stuff that uh, made it very complex. And with a lot of practice, you could create specific sounds from this synthesizer. Uh, You could even create words or full sentences, though from what I understand, it was incredibly challenging to do. It was a very high learning curve. But it demonstrated the possibility of electronic synthesized speech. Now, there was a lot of work done in this field uh, by lots of different talented scientists and engineers. And someday I'll have to do a full episode on the history of speech synthesis. It's really fascinating, but it's far too big a topic to cover in its entirety in this episode. By the late 1960s, we had our first text-to-speech system. And by the late 1970s and early 1980s, the state of the art had progressed quite a bit. And we were starting to get to a point where we could create very understandable computer voices. They weren't natural. They didn't sound like people, but you could understand what they were saying. And finally, something else that would enable smart speakers and virtual assistants was the pairing of improved network connectivity and cloud computing. That removes the need for the device that you're interacting with to do all the processing on its own. So if you think about sort of the history of computing, we used to do mainframes with dumb terminals that attached to the mainframe. So the terminal wasn't doing any computing. It was just tapping into the mainframe computer, which was sending results back to the terminal. Then you get to the era of personal computers where you had a device sitting on your desk that did all the computing and it didn't connect to anything else. Then we get up to networking and the internet where we suddenly had the capability of having really powerful computers or grids of computers that were able to take on processing power uh, and you just you send the request out to the internet and you get the response back. That's the basis of cloud computing. So... Uh, your your command or message or whatever relays back to servers on the cloud that then process it and send the proper response to whatever device you're interacting with, and then you get the result. So with the case of the smart speaker, it might be playing a specific song or giving you a weather report or whatever it might be. Now, if the speakers were doing some of that computation themselves, that would be an example of edge computing, where the processing takes place at least in part at the edge of a network, at those endpoints. But for now, most of the implementations we see send data back to the cloud to get the right response. So you have to have a persistent internet connection. These devices are not useful without that connection. You do have some smart speakers that can connect to a another device like a smartphone via Bluetooth. So you could do things that way. But Without those connections, the smart speaker turns into, you know, just a a dumb speaker or sometimes just a paperweight. Now, this collection of technologies and disciplines are what enabled Apple to introduce Siri in 2011. 
and Siri is a, a virtual assistant. Siri's origins actually trace back to the Stanford Research Institute and a group of guys, uh, Tom Gruber, Adam Chire, and Doug Kitlaus, who had been working on the concept since the 1990s. And when Apple launched the iPhone in 2007, they saw the iPhone as a potential platform for this virtual assistant that they had been building. And they thought, well, this is perfect because the iPhone has a microphone, so the assistant can respond to voice commands. It has a speaker, so it can communicate back to the user. It can do all sorts of stuff. We can tap into the uh, interoperability of apps on the device. It's a perfect platform for us to deploy this. So they developed an app once the opportunity arose because apps were not available for development immediately when Apple launched uh, the iPhone. And... Once they did launch that app, uh, within a month, less than a month, Steve Jobs was on the phone calling them up and offering to buy the technology, which, of course, they would agree to, and it would become an integrated component in Apple's iPhone line afterward. And that's where voice assistants kind of lived for a few years. They mostly lived on smartphones like the iPhone. But in November 2014, Amazon introduced the Amazon Echo Smart Speaker, which was originally only available for Prime members, and it had its own virtual assistant named Alexa, and thus the smart speaker era officially began. Now, there are plenty of other smart speakers that are on the market these days. There are products from Google, like Google Home. Uh, There are Sonos speakers that can connect to services like Amazon's Alexa or Google's Assistant. And we're probably going to see a ton more, both from companies that piggyback onto services from the big providers like Google and Amazon, and maybe some that are trying to make a go of it with their own branded virtual assistants and services. Smart speakers respond to commands after they quote-unquote hear a wake-up word or phrase. Now, I'm going to make up a wake-up phrase right now so that I don't set off anyone's smart speaker or smart watch or smartphone or smart car or whatever it might be. So this is just a fictional example of a wake-up phrase. So let's say I have a smart speaker, and the wake-up phrase for my smart speaker happens to be, Hey there, genie! Well, my smart speaker has a microphone, so it can detect when I say that. But really, it's constantly detecting all sounds in its environment. The microphone's always active. It has to be in order to be able to pick up on when I say the wake-up phrase. So... The microphone's always active on most smart speakers. There's some where you can program it so that it'll only activate if you first touch the speaker and that wakes it up. There are some that you can do that with, but for the most part, they're always listening. While the speaker can quote-unquote hear everything, it's not listening to everything. In other words, it's not monitoring the specific things being said. At least that's what we've been told, and honestly, that makes a ton of sense from an operational standpoint. And the reason I say that is that the sheer amount of information that would be flooding in from all the microphones on all the smart devices from any one provider that happen to be deployed all over the world, that would be an astounding amount of data. And sifting through all that data to find stuff that's useful would take an enormous amount of effort and time and and processing power. So while you could have all the microphones listening in all over the place, Finding out who to listen to at what time would be a lot trickier and probably not worth the effort it would take to pull something like that off. So what these speakers and other devices are actually doing is looking for a signal that matches the one that represents the wake phrase. So when I say, hey there, genie, the microphone picks up my voice which the mic then translates into an electrical signal which gets digitized and compared against the digital fingerprint of the pre-designated wake-up phrase. And in this case, the two phrases match. It's like a fingerprint matching uh, something that was left at a site. So that turns the speaker into an active listener rather than a passive one. It's ready to accept a command or a question and to respond to me. But if I didn't say, hey there, genie, then the speaker would remain in passive mode because it wouldn't have a digital fingerprint that matches the one of the wake-up phrase. Everything stays at the local level, and none of my sweet secret speech gets transmitted across the internet. It's all staying right there. At least that's what we've been told. 
And again, I don't have any reason to disbelieve this, but it is something to keep in mind. You are talking about devices that have microphones. Of course, if you have a smartphone, you've already got one of those, or a cell phone in general. You've got a device with a microphone on it near you pretty much all the time. Now, once I do make a request with my smart speaker, the speaker then sends that request up to the cloud where it gets processed, it's analyzed, uh, and then a proper response is returned to me, whether that is playing a song or giving me information I've asked for, or maybe even interacting with some other smart device in my home, such as adjusting the brightness of my smart lights in my house. Now, if the system is not sure about whatever it was I just said, it will probably return an error phrase. So maybe maybe I'm too far away from the speaker, so it's it couldn't, quote-unquote, hear me really well. Or maybe I've got a mouthful of peanut butter or something, as I want to do. Then I'm going to get something like, I'm sorry, I don't know how to do that, or I'm sorry, I didn't understand you, and then I'd have to repeat it. Now, smart speakers are pretty cool. However, they do represent another piece of technology that you have to network to other devices, including your own home network. And as such, that means that they represent a potential vulnerability in a network. It doesn't mean they're automatically vulnerable, but it means that every time you are connecting something to your network, then you're creating another potential uh, attack vector for a hacker, right? Now, if everything is super strong, it it doesn't really effectively change your safety in any meaningful way. But if one of those uh, things that you connect to your network is less strong than the others, you're looking at a weakest link situation where a hacker with the right know-how and tools could potentially target that part of your network to get entry into everything else. And when you're talking about a smart speaker, you're talking about a device that has a, an active microphone on it. So potentially, if someone were able to compromise a smart speaker, they would be able to listen in on anything that was within range of that smart speaker's microphone. So that's why you have to at least be cognizant of that. Do your research. Make sure the devices you're connecting to your network are rated well as from a security standpoint. Uh, when you're setting things up and you have to create passwords, create strong passwords that are not used anywhere else, the harder you make things, the more likely hackers will just pass you by. Not because you're too tough to crack. Never get your into your head that you're too strong to, to be hacked. But rather, if there's someone who's weaker, then the hackers are going to go after that person instead. So just don't be the weak person. Practice really good security uh, behaviors, and you're more likely to discourage attackers, and they'll they'll go on to someone else. Um, especially if you're talking about newbies who don't really know their way around, they're just using tools that other people have designed, they get discouraged very quickly, they'll move on to someone else because there's always another potential target. I'm curious about you guys, whether or not you have any smart speakers in your life and uh, if you find them useful. I find mine pretty useful. Uh, I use it for a very narrow range of things. I don't tend to use it. I definitely don't use it to its full potential. I know that because once in a blue moon, I'll just try something and I'm amazed at what happens when, uh, when I get a response. But for the most part, I'm asking about weather, what I can feed my dog, whether or not it can turn on the lights and, uh, and, and, that's about it, or occasionally playing a song. Um, but I'm curious what you guys are using them for. Reach out to me on social networks. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter, and the handle for both of those is TechStuffHSW. Also, use that those handles if you have suggestions for future episodes. If you've got you know an idea for either a company or a technology or a theme in tech you'd really like me to tackle, let me know there, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 